We're all living through a historic moment. NASA scientists say this July is likely to be Earth's warmest month on record in hundreds, if not thousands of years. How is this uh, affecting our physical and mental health? What solutions do local leaders have? We are living in a much different summer. It's not your grandmother's summer. It's not even the summer from 10 years ago because we know the heat waves are more frequent. They're longer in duration. Um, which means our bodies are less likely to recover if we don't have refuge from the heat. Our guest today is the Chief Heat Officer for the City of Los Angeles. Marta Segura is leading the nation's second largest city in a search for solutions while keeping equity at the forefront of their efforts. And if you frame it, not so much about climate, but public health impacts on their themselves, their family, their community, I think the, that it becomes a much more personal issue and it becomes a much more important issue when they recognize that it's impacting their community's health or their health. And this is Conversations on Healthcare. Well, welcome, uh, Marta Segura, to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah. You know, uh, you're joining us at a very important time as heat is really the leading weather-related killer in the country. And according to the EPA, we heard you speak at Aspen Ideas Health Gathering. But let's start by giving our audience uh, understanding what does it mean to be the chief heat officer for L.A.? And uh, just out of curiosity, do you have enforcement powers? Great. OK, yes, I'll start with what the role is. I'm, I have a dual role, actually. I'm the Climate Emergency Mobilization Director, and that was my first role here at the city. But then, of course, there was this acknowledgement and um, discovery that extreme heat was LA's primary climate hazard, is LA's uh, most dangerous um, climate emergency. So um, the council, in their wisdom, uh, decided to designate a chief heat officer. So the question really is, what does a chief heat officer do differently than a climate um, officer? And I would say that we, we deal more in the realm of public health and public safety. I work much more closely with our emergency management department on disaster response and emergency management, and then prioritizing extreme heat as one of the primary um, emergencies and, and disasters to prepare for. Um, by by being an advisor in, in steering committees and task forces that identify uh, resources like cooling centers, hydration stations, resilience hubs, um, shade structures, uh, more tree canopy to both have um, a better deployment of resources where they're most needed, but also to create uh, mitigation and adaptation for the long run. So it, it's it's a great fit for me personally because I have a master's degree in public health. So for me, the main reason I got into environmental uh, health, environmental uh, policy was to improve the health of communities. So it makes a lot of sense to me to integrate climate, equity, health, mm -hmm. and disaster response. Well, it's such a, a good fit in terms of a clear and clean title. For sure. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Marta, I know you've been in this role about a, a year or so uh, and lots of projects underway. One of them was titled Heat Relief for LA. I have a feeling many of the things you just talked about probably have been incorporated uh, into Heat Relief for LA. But tell, tell us how it works and what other dimensions uh, does it have and how are you how are you launching this or delivering it to the community? Sure. We we. We had a launch with the mayor's office with LA County and the state of California. Um, and we, one part of it or aspect of it is a broad based social media campaign with over a hundred nonprofit partners, but we have also included businesses on that. The other part um, is creating materials and curriculum and posters to distribute to some of those same nonprofit partners, but more widely throughout the city. Um, in addition to our city departments sharing that information. The other aspect is we're collaborating with Metro, the bus system, the train system, and very soon they will have this information inside their buses, outside the buses, at the bus shelters, on um, some bulletin boards. So we're trying to make this as um, ubiquitous as possible to put heat at the forefront of how people create habits of care for themselves and for their community, um, so that there's a recognition that we are living in a much different summer. It's not your grandmother's summer. It's not even the summer from 10 years ago because we know the heat waves are more frequent, they're longer in duration, um, which means our bodies are less likely to recover if we don't have refuge from the heat. So we're trying to instill in these better uh, habits of care so people can know what to do but also recognize the symptoms. So all of this is a public awareness campaign, but also we're compensating some nonprofit organizations that already have community health educators to um, share this information with the more vulnerable communities, because as we know, vulnerable communities um, have greater rates of chronic illness. They live in more polluted areas. They live in areas with less access to thermal comfort or air conditioning. And that's why we see higher rates of emergency room visits and also uh, premature deaths in right. those areas. So it's it, we are trying to make it as comprehensive as possible. Um, and it's our first year that we've really launched this, but we hope to learn a lot of lessons this year and continue to uh, increase that communication. And I also want to point out that it's part of any healthy early warning system to have this kind of a campaign because you don't wanna just notify people two days in advance that there's gonna be a heat event. You want people to know the significance of that heat event by having this kind of early communication and awareness building uh, so people actually know what to do and how to prevent um, heat injury. Right. You know, Marta, speaking of uh, uh, learning lessons, there are a few other chief heat officers across the country in cities like Phoenix. I think Phoenix had 20 plus days of over 110 degrees and and Miami, uh, another uh, city uh, that has a chief uh, heat officer. But you're the first uh, Latina to serve in such a role. How are you using this really unique platform to re reach the vulnerable populations uh, in, in LA? Yes, no, that's a really good point. I think part of my drive and motivation is the fact that I come from a family where my father was both a farm worker and a construction worker. My mother was a cannery worker. So they would tell me about the um, fainting, the, the injuries, the deaths, the accidents that would happen as a result of heat exposure, 
right? So it's it's a driver for me. And one way that I'm addressing that as a public official is I'm bilingual. So I can do interviews in Spanish. I can I can write up um, narratives in Spanish, mm-hmm. but we have a multilingual campaign. So I'm I'm sensitive to the fact that other vulnerable communities, uh, maybe not as large as the Latino community in Los Angeles, but Korean, Armenian, Tagalog, uh, Chinese are all part of our campaign. And we're also partnering with organizations that serve those communities so that we can get this information out to them. And in fact, we're also partnering with um, indigenous communities from both Mexico and Central America, because they have very different languages as well. But fortunately, there's an organization here that has the expertise to translate this information into Uh that language. So I think that that experience has made me a lot more sensitive to how important it is to have this information available in various languages and, and really careful about how we create strategies to reach these more difficult to reach communities that are, aren't traditionally part of you know, the broader civic en- engagement that we have in Los Angeles. And Marta, are you working with these other chief heat officers? Do you have an association or is it more informal right now? Um, yeah, well, with the Miami and Sierra Leone, uh, there's like eight women chief heat officers. We have a cohort, right? And so we just had a meeting this morning, for example. Many of us are going to um, a retreat in September. I won't be able to make it because it's our peak heat season, uh, but we're all meeting in Nairobi. Last year uh-huh. we met in Washington, D.C. With regards to David Hondula, you know, in Arizona, we, ha- we meet pretty frequently. We're on a couple of cohorts ourselves. And then in addition to that, we serve on panels for one another. I invite him to be on panels with LA and um, I really respect the work that he's done there. And in fact, I've learned a lot from Miami and Phoenix and Mm -hmm. other offices that have um, already implemented heat planning into their, into their city, city plans. Yeah. Well, as in so many uh, health equity issues, poverty rears its head here. A study found that areas with higher rates of poverty at temperature seven degrees warmer in the summer compared to wealthier neighborhoods. And, you know, it may seem obvious to some folks what those contributing factors might be, but mm-hmm. we would love to hear from you. What are the equity issues with heat, climate change, and why do they exist? Great. Well, I think the easiest way to explain that is that in most cities, there was redlining and therefore subsequent historical disinvestment because those redlined areas uh, by by legislation, we're not receiving uh, the capital investments that other areas were receiving. Um, and those areas were also where we put the manufacturing, the polluters, the refineries, the oil drills. And so that's what made that real estate uh, less desirable and also less expensive to live near, right? Um, so those are contributing factors to why there is more chronic illness in those areas and why there's less tree canopy why there is less uh, public infrastructure, green space, green streets, open space. Um, We're trying to catch up, I think. We're trying to catch up in most cities, uh, but it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of catching up to do, over 60 years of catching up to do to ensure that um, we have healthy, thriving communities everywhere. The other part that I want to mention is that 
heat exacerbates and stagnates pollution and smoke. So if you have pollution in these areas and you have uh, wildfire nearby, those two are exacerbated. Um, and what that means is in our breathing zone, right. our near surface temperature, we're right. more exposed in those areas to longer, uh, greater rates of pollution. And yeah. so, and if those bodies are compromised already by chronic illness, whether it's diabetes, obesity, heart disease, kidney disease, um, it has a, an even greater impact on people with those kinds of chronic illnesses because heat can denature our circulatory system, mm -hmm. right? And once it starts to do that and deoxygenates our system, then that's what puts us into uh, the, the risk zone of exhaustion and heat stroke. Mm -hmm. So we want to be able to tell these communities, look, you're even at greater risk, even if it may not be as hot as it is in some parts of the desert, because you have this pollution level, because you don't have um, amenities like tree canopy and shade structures while you're walking from school to home or from home to work, et cetera. So those are all, um, and, and then there's food and diet, right? I also like right. to point out that uh, caffeine, coffee, soda, um, alcohol, all dehydrate our bodies. So if you're a construction worker that lives in one of these areas or even just anywhere in, in the city um, and you had a beer the night before, you drank three cups of, three cups of coffee before your workday starts, you're already starting at a disadvantage, yeah. right? So then there's that, I guess I brought that up because there's a awareness and educational disadvantage because we have food deserts in these areas and people tend to rely on sodas to refresh themselves or, you know, iced coffees to refresh themselves yeah. or a beer. And, and those, um, going back to the habits of care, if we yeah. really want to care for our bodies, we need to reduce the consumption of those particular during heat season. We're, we're speaking today with uh, Marta Segura, Chief Heat Officer for the uh, Los Angeles. Marta, I'm wondering about how uh, you're able to address some of these issues that uh, have a s significant cost associated with them. I'm wondering how Sa Sacramento and uh, Washington, D.C. are helping out uh, because some of these historic problems really uh, uh, require uh, uh, investments uh, by state mm -hmm. and local as well as national uh, governments. Uh, what are you seeing uh, that g gives you some hope? Well, I'm seeing more resources in the state of California being allocated for climate adaptation, climate mitigation, and in particular, extreme heat. Um, and the state of California is taking a very proactive um, stance on extreme heat and creating legislation around it and funding various departments like the Office of Planning and Research, Cal OES, um, even their, their Department of Public Health are, have all received resources to not just um, uh, redistribute to cities, but also participate in broader reaching campaigns across the state. So that's hopeful. Uh, I've also seen FEMA change their guidelines to include climate hazards mm -hmm. in our local hazard mitigation plans. And in Los Angeles and in other cities, extreme heat is that primary climate hazard. And so we're creating 
a special report in our local hazard mitigation plans to address the gaps, to address the deficiencies that we still have. And those plans not only serve to guide LA on what to do, but they're advocacy tools and we can use them to show the state and the federal government what still needs to be funded, right? <laughs> and so at the federal level, of course, you've heard of IRA, um, the invest, uh, Infrastructure uh, Investment Act, and we wanna make sure that in the city of LA, we receive our fair share. So we have um, a chief administrative officer who is also our capital climate investment czar. Mm -hmm. So he's going to be uh, tracking and monitoring all of these federal investments and sharing them with various departments, whether it's sanitation or public works, emergency management, planning department. So each department can apply for these available funds for the city of LA. And so for me, that's hopeful. And the other part that's hopeful to me is that the city of LA has an equity index. So we're trying to align that equity index to monitor and track our investments, but also align it with Justice 40, the Biden administration initiative that basically tells cities to invest no less than 40% of these climate infrastructure investments in communities that are vulnerable. And he calls them environmental justice communities specifically. So all of this has to work in concert. And I think Los Angeles um, is, is at the forefront of some of those needed changes to ensure that the money goes where it needs to go. Right. Great. Well, certainly we want to keep an eye on, on what you're doing because the rest of the country isn't far behind. This has been a summer where we saw record-breaking heat spikes all over, uh, even in the uh, the east where we are. But I, I wanted to ask you, uh, sort of addressing both the equity issue and the health impacts of heat, research also shows uh, that there are greater mental health issues as the temperature increases. Some research showing that Black and Hispanic people may experience greater mental health issues uh, mm -hmm. secondary to the heat. That, that calls for a whole different response, uh, perhaps, or an additional response, particularly, I would think, from your public health and law enforcement and civic uh, employees. What are what are you doing to address that issue? Well, fortunately, in L.A., we have the county of Los Angeles and they have a department of public health, but they also have a mental health division. And so we're going to be working much more closely with them to ensure that this information gets out to their promotional materials. But we also want to work more closely with hospitals and clinics to not just identify when people come in for heat stroke or heat injury, but if people are coming in because of increased anxiety or they're, they're at the hospital because there was um, an incident that involved mental health um, uh, issues, that there is a correlation being made with the possibility that it was caused by extreme heat, right? Uh -huh. So we, we want to make sure to uh, a, you know, create the collaborations that we need to address that issue more seriously, but also build the awareness so that people know that this could be the reason why they're having more incidents during the summer. And in these communities that you've mentioned, like the Latino communities, the Black communities, and in LA, they're one and the same. Latinos and Black communities live together. There could be an increase in um, violence, right? Uh -huh. And crime. And that's where... Um, 
we need to work with law enforcement to have this recognition that, um, you know, during areas of extreme heat, maybe we want to do more in advance to, to ensure people are safe and that they stay cool and they have areas of refuge and, and then monitor and track whether those kinds of investments are also having a positive impact on, on, that, mm -hmm. on that metric. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned uh, clinics, and I know the federally qualified health centers across the country. This is a very important issue for them and are working hard. You know, probably the rest of the country looks at L.A. and says it's a very progressive community. Uh, but the reality is you're dealing with climate change deniers all the time. I'm wondering how mm -hmm. you manage the pushback that you're getting and uh, any advice for others as they're thinking about this conversation that needs to take place uh, with every member of the community. Yeah, I really think that engagement is a key part of it. Having not just conversations, but focus groups like in person um, so that you're not just asking people questions, but you're having a conversation with them about what they think the solutions are. And if you frame it, not so much about climate, but public health impacts on their themselves, their family, their community, I think the, that it becomes a much more personal issue and it becomes a much more important issue when they recognize that it's impacting their community's health or their health. So I think that, that that's another reason why framing it as extreme heat, not just as a climate emergency, um, has been super helpful across the nation. I had a conversation the other day with um, the, the climate director in Mobile, Alabama. Her name escapes me now. But you would think that, you know, for, in Alabama, she wouldn't be having much success. But she's having a, quite a bit of success because of her public engagement approach. Mm -hmm. And she's even tracked, um, you know, Latino, African-American and other ethnic groups um, in, in their responses on how they feel about climate change and how they feel about extreme heat. So maybe the politics are still very, you know, challenging and difficult in those areas. But when you talk to people, people are concerned. People mm -hmm. do want to remedy the, the challenges before them. And if they build that awareness and they build that muscle to know that there's a correlation between extreme heat and public mm -hmm. health, I think it becomes a lot easier to deal with. And then the elected officials in those areas could get more, um, you know, pressure to make mm -hmm. the changes that are necessary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And well, you haven't brought up Texas, but I, you know, Texas is a good example of where I believe people are very concerned about their health, um, want to do something about it, but the governor obviously diminished the, um, the guidelines for breaks for construction workers, mm -hmm. which is yeah. devastating because you know that that will result in more death. Well, Marta, I, uh, I know, uh, the CDC has estimated over 700 Americans die from heat each year. I, I have a feeling that's probably underreported uh, as in terms of contributing factors. And I actually was just uh, over the last few days with uh, lots of different groups from around the country that are engaged in training healthcare professionals. Uh, and several of them were actually from the LA County Health Department. You were well represented uh, yes. at the meeting. But I'm I'm curious, as you do your master planning, are you working to try and incorporate training around addressing the the uh, impact of heat on uh, 
are trying to impact the training of health professionals to recognize it, to understand it, to counsel people? Is that working it way th- working its way through the curriculum as well? Yes, it is for us, and we've already begun to develop curriculum for all of our city partners. And um, I will say that the Department of Health and Human Services has reached out to our office, the state, uh, these federally qualified healthcare providers, hospitals, and we're going to be having a meeting next week uh, to talk about not just the training that will be necessary, but the data that will be necessary and what data gaps still exist and how we could expedite um, the collection of that information to be much more um, uh, resourceful and efficient in how we're tracking the improvements from the investments that we're making. Um, And I'd like to point out that Dr. Eisenman at the UCLA School of Public Health created this heat map, which is basically a heat risk map that points out excess deaths and hospitalizations in across California. Right. Uh And it demonstrates that in these areas of vulnerability, you obviously have far more emergency room visits. I think he tracked that 1200, there's 1177 on average more emergency room visits in these areas of vulnerability per heat wave. Right. And not all of those result in death, but it's just an indicator of how much more um, we need this data and this collaboration with clinics and hospitals. So I'm, I'm glad to see the Department of Health and Human Services taking this leadership role. So I want to thank Javier Becerra for that. I know he was somebody that you interviewed earlier, um, but they are taking that proactive role and being more involved in in how municipalities and states can um, uh, accelerate those types of trainings and solutions. Marta, you've got the opportunity here on Conversations on Healthcare to talk to uh, leaders uh, in all 50 states, the District of Columbia and the territories. I'm wondering what recommendations would you have for uh, cities and towns, should they uh, embrace the idea of a heat officer? I, I would say yes, because um, when I was hired as a chief heat or designated chief heat officer, it gave me a, additional responsibilities, but it also gave me a, additional authority, right, to, to be an influencer, a policy influencer within the city of L.A., in areas that I wasn't already a part of. So there, there is definitely an added value to having somebody who is just dated, dedicated to extreme heat as a climate emergency to ensure that it is not the silent killer for their municipalities. And it, it, in my experience, the media um, has been much more interested in discussing extreme heat as a public health issue. Um, more so than climate, right? There are experts in that area there, but but for some reason, extreme heat, I think, became a priority for our city because of the public health threats. So if your city wants to address this um, and wants to accelerate solutions, it, it does help to have one leader to unsilo, collaborate, and coordinate these different um, entities, agencies, and plans within your municipality so that you can create a more comprehensive um, solution that affects those various areas that I've mentioned, whether it's public health, public safety, emergency response, and climate adaptation and climate mitigation. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's great. great. Well, thank you, uh, Marta Segura, uh, Chief Heat Officer for Los Angeles for your environmental leadership. Uh, and we also advise everyone to stay cool and healthy right now. Uh, and thanks to our audience. Be sure to go online at chcradio.com to sign up for our email updates. Marta, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate you both. Thank you, Margaret, Mark, right. everyone. Thank you, Marta. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities. 50 years ago, a small band of idealists set out to change their community. Peace and health is the story of renegades, innovators, caregivers, and community leaders who discover that change is possible. This improbable journey is captured in compelling detail by author Charles Barber. Cornell professor Dr. Joseph J. Finns says, It reads like a novel, but it's all true. Peace and health, available now.